All right, friends, uh, we're going to come back together now. Tonight, we're doing things just a little bit differently, and we're going to have our sermon, then a song, then Lord's Supper, then a song, then we're going to end together. But as we come into God's word now, let me lead us in prayer. We ask, Heavenly Father, that as we come to your word, that you would speak to us, that we would love you more and know you more and love each other as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how many of your memories involve meals. As I look back on many significant times in my life, it seems that many of them do involve a meal. And I wonder, maybe that's just because we tend to celebrate special events over meals. You know, when it's someone's birthday, we'll, we'll go out to dinner or we'll cook up a special meal. And when it's a really important milestone, uh, we'll have a very big and expensive meal. I've uh, married off two daughters. I know all about that. But it seems that throughout history, meals have marked important times throughout the history of God's people. And one of the most memorable was known as the Passover. The Passover was a very memorable meal. Once a year... God's people had a meal to remember his amazing rescue of his people. You see, what happened was that after many years of cruelty in Egypt, God sent plagues so that the enemies would release God's people from captivity. And the most shocking of all of these was the final plague, where the firstborn males were killed by the angel of death. That was, unless the, the household put lamb's blood on the door frame, because then they would be saved by the blood of the lamb, because the angel of death would pass over them. And because of that, they then set up a tradition, and that tradition was called the Passover. They would have a meal together to remember this incredible rescue, and it was the most important occasion for God's people, and this meal helped them remember God's salvation for them. But if this meal was so important for God's people, then why is it that we don't celebrate it here at Jamboree Anglican? And if I, was asked, if I was to ask you guys how many of you have been to a Passover meal, I reckon not many would, of you would have. I haven't been to one. So what's happened? Well, it turns out that something much bigger and better than the Passover meal has come. A greater act of salvation happened there was much better to remember than this, the Passover. And Jesus announced this at the final Passover for God's people. Let's have a listen to these familiar words from Luke chapter 22. See, when the time came, Jesus and the apostles sat down together at the table. Jesus said, I have been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. He took some bread and gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the supper, he took another cup of wine and said, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. See, in that one meal with a dozen close friends, Jesus radically transformed the most important meal in the life of God's people. 
And he replaced the Passover with the Lord's Supper. And this new meal was very important for a number of reasons. The first is that instead of talking about the Passover bread and the Passover lamb, he now talked about his own body and blood. He replaced the sacrifice of the Passover lamb with the sacrifice of himself, who would be the lamb of God. And he said that the sacrifice of his own blood would set up a brand new covenant between God and his people, a brand new agreement. This new covenant completely replaced the old covenant. The old covenant was famous for a big temple and animal sacrifices and priests doing all sorts of things and all these rules and laws that you had to keep. Jesus came in and said, all that is now gone. That's the old. The new has come. The old covenant, the Old Testament, no. The new covenant, the New Testament, yes. And all of this was seen in the Lord's Supper. And so from then onwards, instead of the Passover meal, they would eat the Lord's Supper. Jesus has given us this meal so that we might now remember his death and the new covenant that he created with his blood. But it wasn't just a one-off. He actually instructed his followers to keep doing it and do it we have. We've met regularly to remember the death of Jesus by having a meal. And in this meal, we have a special focus. And this focus is on the death of Jesus. That is why we keep doing it here. We participate in this meal of bread and wine by by drinking grape juice and gluten-free bread. That's how we do it here. And we do it each month as part of our normal Sunday church service. It's a meal that focuses on the death of Jesus. And this meal was so significant to God's people that Paul mentions it twice in his first letter to the people at Corinth, which we've been studying here over the last few months. And back at chapter 10, we read these things about it. It said, When we bless the cup at the Lord's table, aren't we sharing in the blood of Christ? And when we break the bread, aren't we sharing in the body of Christ? And though we are many, we all eat from one loaf of bread, showing that we are one body. You see, these verses came right in the middle of a discussion about the problems of eating food sacrificed to idols. And in those verses, the Apostle Paul makes reference to the Lord's Supper, which was just something they knew and that they did. It was just a normal part of the Christian life. And in the verses around this in chapter 10, he makes the point that when they eat and drink of the Lord's Supper, they're actually doing something supernatural. It's not just any meal. It's a special meal with a spiritual sharing the body and blood of Christ. So it was a normal thing for them. But it certainly wasn't a normal meal. Because as they ate and drank at the Lord's Supper, something spiritual happened because they spiritually shared with Christ. And so in the meal, we too spiritually share with Christ. Now you would think that this particular occasion would have a deep impact on the way that they lived. You'd think when they got together to remember the death of Jesus, 
It would shake up what they do, what they did. You know, it would it would challenge their culture. It would would cut through the social structures. But sadly, the Christians in Corinth were living like the Lord's Supper was just a normal dinner with friends at home. And their bad behaviour showed an even deeper problem. Let's have a look at the action from verse 17 of chapter 11. Because he says, But in the following instructions I cannot praise you, for it sounds as if more harm than good is done when you meet together. Paul's just been talking about some other teachings, teachings that he passed on about how to act in church in a way that shows that men and women have different roles. But then he brings another teaching and he says to them, you're not following it. And all that teaching is to do with the Lord's Supper. And it's all to do, the problem it is, it's all to do with how they relate to each other when they're eating it. Let's read on from verse 18. He says, First, I hear that there are divisions among you when you meet as a church. And to some extent, I believe it. So here's the very activity that's supposed to show their unity in Christ. And yet, they're doing the opposite. In that meal, they're living like they're divided. They should be united, but they're living like they're divided. And you can tell Paul is really not happy with it. And you pick it up especially in the next verse where his sarcasm is just biting. He says in verse 19, But of course, there must be divisions among you so that you who have God's approval will be recognised. It's biting in his his sarcasm there. Although it does seem quite close to the truth. Now there is a time when we do need to break away from others who say that they are Christians. And that's when they're teaching things that are wrong and teaching things that are harmful, teaching things that lead people astray. We need to say, no, they are wrong and we're not united with them. It's painful, but it's necessary. But otherwise, we need to be unified. That's who we are. It's what we should be like. And that's where he goes next, verse 20. He says, when you meet together, you're not really interested in the Lord's Supper. For some of you hurry to eat your own meal without sharing with others. And as a result, some go hungry while others get drunk. Now, when we think of meeting for church, we think of a a church building like this. But in the first century, they just met in people's homes. And the thing about the homes in Corinth is that within a household, there were significant class distinctions. You'd have people who were slaves and you'd have people who were free. And the slaves would serve the free people. And that would be the case when they'd have a meal. Normally the slaves would serve those who are the free people, the masters and so on. And when the masters had had enough food to eat, then the slaves would have the rest afterwards. That was kind of just normal life. And so you would expect that when they got together for church that things might be a little bit different. But the problem was that in these Corinthian homes, normally those who were well-off were served first and the lower class was served second. And that was what was happening when they got there for church. You see, it's not like one of those all-you-can-eat buffets at a, at a 
hotel or something like that where when they go low on the, on the food, they just bring out more, they bring out more, they bring out more. Not like this. If all of the upper-class people pigged out at the start and filled their stomachs, then those who are poorer would come after them and have nothing to eat. Now, you can sort of understand how that might happen in certain houses in Corinth, but surely not amongst the Christians, and surely, surely not when they're gathering for the Lord's Supper. But that is what's happening. Some are eating so much and drinking so much that they get drunk and the rest of them go hungry. And the point of all of this is it's supposed to be about the Lord, not their lunch. And this is a rebuke that comes from this. Verse 22. Paul says, what? Don't you have your own homes for eating and drinking? Or do you really want to disgrace God's church and shame the poor? What am I supposed to say? Do you want me to praise you? Well, I certainly won't praise you for this. You can see Paul's pretty grumpy with them, and rightly so. He's telling them, if you're hungry, have a meal at home before you come to church. And when you do come to church, it's for all ages and stages and classes. And when you get there, what's it about? It's about serving others, not being served. Because that's what Jesus did. He came not to be served, but to serve. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. But instead, they're, they're serving themselves. And they're shaming the poor. Can you imagine that? When they do it, sadly, they're disgracing God's church. Because in church... They need to live like all people are equal. You know, that's how God made humans. God's actually the one who invented the human right that we are all equal. And in Australia, we don't find that too hard. We're, we're very strongly egalitarian. We're almost classless. You know, we're the kind of people who sit in the front seat of taxis. We're the kind of people who address our prime minister by his nickname. You know, imagine what it'd be like if Albo came to church. He'd sort of sit at the back and we'd sort of say... Where do I know him from? Anyway, and then we wander over for, 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 uh, for dinner afterwards um, and he'd just get in the line with us and we'd be fine with that and he'd be fine with that and, you know, that's just how we roll in Australia. Not so in other countries, that's for sure, and certainly not in the first century. For them, class was such a big thing, but not so much for us. But nonetheless, the warning is there because we need to avoid favouritism. We can sometimes give one person a bit of a better treatment than somebody else. Maybe it's because of their age. Maybe it's because they have a certain fame or a leadership role or, or, or maybe they just seem wealthy, whatever it is. Or, you know, we just got to make sure that that's not what we do. We can't be on about favouritism at all. And it all comes back to the true meaning of the Lord's Supper. You see, the Apostle Paul now tells them why the Lord's Supper exists. He thinks it's so important that he actually includes it in his letter. And so he says in verse 23, For I pass on to you what I receive from the Lord himself. He got this tradition from Jesus and he says, I'm now going to give it to you directly. And it sounds really simple to what we heard a short while ago in Luke's Gospel. And it says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 11 from verse 23, On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took some bread 
And he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. To help them realise how worldly they've become, the Apostle Paul now reminds them with what the Lord's Supper is really all on about. And he says twice, it's about remembering Jesus. Jesus says, eat this, drink this in remembrance of me. That's what happens when we come together for the Lord's Supper. We remember Jesus. But we also remember the new covenant. Because it's all about the new covenant between God and his people. It's no longer dependent on the old temple and the old sacrifices and the old priests. It's all about what Jesus has done for us through the full, sufficient, perfect sacrifice once offered for our sins. And what's more, this meal, it's a bit strange because it actually preaches. It announces the Lord's death until he comes again. It's a message in a meal. But more than that also, it actually spiritually engages us with Jesus. Somehow there is a genuine sharing in the body and blood of Jesus as we eat and drink the Lord's Supper, which means it's more than just any normal meal. And so we've got to recognise its significance. And that's what Paul says next. And with it comes a serious warning. Verse 27. So anyone who eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord unworthily is guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. If you or I eat the Lord's Supper unworthily, we sin against the body and blood of Jesus. And that's a big thing, surely. It's not just a meal, because it's a meal that represents Jesus himself. And if we treat the meal like it's unimportant, or if we eat it in such a way that's not loving to others, then we treat, it, we treat Jesus that way as well. We sin against Jesus himself. I wonder if you think about the Lord's Supper this way. I wonder if you maybe sometimes just think of it as a thing we do once a month in church. Because as we read this here in 1 Corinthians, we can see that it's more than just a meal. It's a spiritual thing that is very significant. And for that reason, Paul says in verse 28 to the Christians in Corinth, he says, that is why you should examine yourself before eating the bread and drinking the cup. He says, they need to have a long, hard look at themselves before they have the Lord's Supper. I wonder if that's something that you ever do before you have the Lord's Supper together? Or do you just sort of go through the motions, just eat and drink and so on? Because what we're told here in God's Word is that we need to take the Lord's Supper seriously because it's a powerful spiritual thing that we're engaging with. And with this comes a strong warning that I've got to say is a little bit unexpected. Verse 29. 
For if you eat the bread or drink the cup without honouring the body of Christ, you are eating and drinking God's judgment upon yourself. So not only is there a risk of sinning, there's a risk of something more. Because if we participate in the Lord's Supper without honouring Christ's body, we eat judgment upon ourselves. God will judge us if we don't treat seriously the meal that represents Jesus' death. But that's not all that it means to honour the body of Christ, is it? Because we, the church, are the body of Christ, right? And so that means that as we eat, we must honour other Christians. We are the body of Christ. And so if we eat the Lord's Supper without honouring Christians by showing love, then we're acting like we're not Christians at all. And that will then bring judgment. But how does that judgment actually look? Well, here's a surprise word, something I don't think I expected to read, but I did. What about you? Verse 30, it says, That's why many of you are weak and sick and some have even died. Does that surprise you a little bit when you read that? Does it make you go, huh? hang on, because it makes me think that. The Apostle Paul here seems to be linking the illnesses and deaths of some Christians in Corinth with this disregard for the body of Christ. Because they've dishonoured the body of Christ, which is seen in how they've shown no love for each other as they've had the Lord's Supper, because they have done that, it's brought about a physical illness to some of them. Do you reckon that's a bit surprising to hear? I think it is. After all, we're convinced that there's normally no correlation between sin and sickness. You know, we, we know of sinful atheists who have done horrendous things and yet they've lived a full and healthy life and grown very, very old in age and just died in their sleep. Age 95. And we also know of wonderful, godly, faithful Christians who have dedicated their life to the Lord and yet have suffered at have had horrible illnesses and and early deaths and persecution and all those sorts of things. And so it just doesn't seem to add up, does it? But not just that. There was a time when Jesus was asked about a disaster. The Tower of Siloam fell down and killed a whole lot of people. It was back in, in Luke 13. Some people said to Jesus, what about this tower? What about the people? Did they die because they were more sinful than others? And he said, no, 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 it's not to do with that. There's not a connection like that. When these things happen, though, you've got to stop and reflect upon your life. You need to repent if necessary. And that's the only connection that Jesus made between the tragedy and between sin. And so with all these things in mind, you've got to ask yourself a question, why is it that a disregard for the body of Christ at the Lord's Supper, why might it cause sickness and even death to some? Well, I don't know the answer to that. And I don't know the specific circumstances of what happened in Corinth. But we do at very least need to hear the warning today 
And the warning is that we mustn't take God's judgment for granted. Because if we treat the Lord's Supper in such a way that we think the Lord's Supper and, and the people that Christ saved, that they are unimportant, then we open ourselves up to God's judgment. Because if a person doesn't think that the death of Jesus matters, then they're not saved. And if they show that in their disregard for the body of Christ, that they don't have any respect for the church, then it's further evidence that they don't really know Jesus. Because you, you can't say, I really love Jesus, but I really hate Christians. It doesn't work that way. Now, we don't know the full situation about what happened here in Corinth, but there's enough evidence here that we should take seriously the warning to not, take, to not eat the supper of our Lord lightly and to not have disregard for the body of Christ, his people. And so here's the solution, verse 31. But if we would examine ourselves, we would not be judged by God in this way. The solution is to examine ourselves first before taking the Lord's Supper. We need to take it in such a way that it recognises the importance of what it's signifying. We've got to take the Lord's Supper knowing that it points to the tragic and triumphant death of Jesus Christ, a, a once-for-all sacrifice for us. And when we take the Lord's Supper, we've got to do it in such a way that shows love for the body of Christ, for the church. Treating each Christian as valued and loved in God's sight. But even as this happens, God will use afflictions to discipline his people for our good. Verse 32. Yet when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned along with the world. When we are sick... It's an opportunity to reflect on our lives and to repent where necessary. In our illnesses, we should reflect on our life. And that means that the trial of illness, it's a sign of love from God as he disciplines us. And it's a sign of love so that it will lead us to remain faithful to him throughout our life in the same way that he is faithful to us. But I've got to say this is still a real challenge to us. It's a challenge to us because it kind of messes with our minds when we think about who God is. And this is particularly true of people who don't actually know God. See, people often find it hard to understand how a loving God could allow suffering or even how he could bring about illness in people. A lot of people think that, you know, God would never do anything to make anyone sad or upset. Most people have a kind of a universal sense of entitlement that, that basically life is supposed to be happy and healthy and wealthy. But you know what that is? That's paganism. Paganism is all about saying if you worship the great idol properly then you will get much pleasure and rewards and riches. But if you don't worship that pagan idol properly, 
you'll have a horrible life as curses will come down upon you. But that's not the way that the Bible talks about life this side of heaven. If you think that following Jesus should make your life wealthy and healthy and happy, then you're wrong. Because just think about what happened to Jesus' first apostles, his disciples. They had a horrible life. They went through physical afflictions. They were tortured. They starved. They were bashed up. Is it because they weren't very good Christians? Quite the opposite. They were faithful to Jesus, their master. And they had a really tough physical life. What makes you think that if you follow Jesus, you'll have a happy life and a simple life and a good life and you'll never get sick? and You'll never have to pay a bill in your life, really? Hardship is normal for Christians. When things go badly for you, don't think that God stopped loving you. Things will go wrong. You'll get sick. People you know will get sick. People you love will die. Financial troubles will happen. You'll lose your job or someone else will. Relationships will break down. All sorts of things will go wrong in life. And if you think that you're entitled to a good life, then you think that God doesn't love you. But that's not how it works. Hardship is normal for Christians. And what's more, it's actually possible that the hardship is a sign of God's loving discipline for you. No one likes receiving discipline. But discipline is good when it leads us to go back on the track. When it leads us to remain strong to the final day. Because we want to be people who escape the world's condemnation more than anyone else. And if it takes an illness or, or some sort of trouble to lead us to repent of something even if it doesn't seem like they're connected, then what a blessing it is that you got sick. Because it's no use going through life without any illness and ending up going to hell. Far better that you get afflicted with things and stop and turn to Jesus or turn back to Jesus or repent of some sin and be reconciled with him and be saved. Because ultimately all that really matters is eternity. And life this side of heaven is just a mere mist that comes and goes. And so finally, with that in mind, Paul ends with this word to the church in Corinth. Verse 33 and 34, he says, So, my dear brothers and sisters, when you gather for the Lord's Supper, wait for each other. If you're really hungry, eat at home so you won't bring judgment upon yourselves when you meet together. I'll give you instructions about the other matters after I arrive. Basically, he's saying that they should treat the Lord's Supper as different to a normal meal. And that is because the radical world of the church is thoroughly different to the world. Because in the church, it doesn't matter what your social status is. We are all one in Christ Jesus.
And that needs to be experienced when we gather together for church. And especially at the Lord's Supper. You know, I've experienced many memorable meals in my time. Weddings, birthdays, other occasions. But ultimately there is no greater meal than the Lord's Supper. For when we eat or drink this meal, we proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Come, Lord Jesus. Well, in a moment, we're going to have the Lord's Supper together. But before we do that, we're going to stand and we're going to sing about the power of the cross.